Father, would this word really strike um, something in our hearts as we hear from you. We're going to read the word of the Lord for today from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. I'm going to move it to the side with more light. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. When you fast, do not look somber, as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will, be, it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. So Will Smith smacked Chris Rock in the face. Did, did anybody hear about this? I'm, gonna, I'm just kidding. I'm going to spare you my take. But um, you do got to love Denzel. I mean, the guy is just the man. Um, sober. He's done the work. Um, in the days after this, uh, this, this incident in the Oscars, I was watching. I was watching live. I'm not, I haven't always seen the Oscars all the way, but I was watching, and I saw this happen. I was like, oh, my. And then my son came in, like, sometime in between Will smacking Chris and Will winning uh, his, his Oscar, and we were trying to explain. Like, we're like, our jaws are dropped, and we're, like, trying to explain what happened. He's like, can you go back? And we're like, shut up. Sit down. Um, it was, like, <laughs> such an intense moment of television. Um, but in the days after, uh, there was all this speculation and, and conversation about what, what was behind what we saw in, in, this, in this incident, uh, uh, you know, or, or what did we really see if we had the Australian uncut feed um, that divided. Um, what, what is Will going through? How much did Chris Rock know? What, what about Jada's agency to speak for herself? Uh, do we trust Will's apology? We, we, we do this, right? We all become arbiters of these public moments and sort of give our opinion on, on you know, what's going on. And I think that's an interesting thing to look at for ourselves. What does, that, what does that tell us about our own hearts? What does that tell us about our society? All right, how about this? Let's bring it a little closer to church for a second. Carl Lentz from Hillsong in New York. Bill Hybels. Midwest, I'm just, I literally just picked regional public scandals here. Uh, 
Mark Driscoll, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. You guys heard any, any of these things? These are big media. There's been big media coverage about uh, American pastors with large influence and large congregations that have had these uh, very public scandals. And uh, sometimes we say the phrase fall from grace, which I actually don't think you can do fall beyond the reach of grace. But that's what we say when, when someone, uh, their public, li- public life gets uh, broken up by some, some scandal, we know we could pick more. This is uh, not, not a terribly new phenomenon. We have our own thoughts and opinions, and, and you know, we, we, we discuss this as a society. What does it mean that, um, you know, the, 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 the character wasn't present in the way we thought in these, in these instances? If we can do anything as America, well, we can do public scandal, right? We, we know this. This is one of our things. Um, uh, we've seen it, many of us, from our hometowns. Uh, to our highest, highest offices. Uh, a person's public persona can extend beyond what their character seems to be able to support. In some instances, maybe even the character flaws themselves were assets in the rise to power or influence, and then at some point they become liabilities. But we have to acknowledge uh, what it means that we're, we're sort of having this conversation out in, a, in a direction outward from ourselves. We, we, we put a lot on our celebrities in, in America, on our, our well-known public figures, and they allow us to do that evaluation, that conversation, that speculation, sometimes without having to acknowledge some of the very same realities in our own lives. And so we can sort of uh, sig- signal our own uh, righteousness by, you know, uh, making a statement on some, some new public event. But we need to learn to be people who ask ourselves the hard questions. Where, where might I be pretending? Where am I carefully crafting a public image of myself that I am determined must appear a certain way? Are, are there character flaws or, or repeated patterns in my life that I'm not being honest about? You are a, a wildly talented and gorgeous group of people. Let me just say that to you. Um, hope you receive that this, this Sunday morning. Um, but are your gifts, are your talents, are your abilities uh, supported by character, supported by a life of integrity? Does my private life and my public life match? Jesus' most famous sermon the Sermon on the Mount in Luke, it's the Sermon on the Plain, less elevation. Um, it, it's not that long. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. This is a challenge to all of us public preachers that Jesus is able to do it in a concise way. What a guy. But give me a break. He's the, he's the, you know, the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in bodily form. So I need 30 minutes, okay? Um, but in this relatively short address... Uh, Jesus makes a big deal about something I think I find a little bit unexpected. Jesus makes a big deal about secrets. Specifically, Jesus teaches that we should have a secret life. That there is power. That there is promise. That there is integrity in hiddenness. If you were to step back and try to summarize the scope of what Jesus is doing in the gospel accounts and the movement that spills out from the life of Jesus and his followers into the world, you could begin to summarize it by saying Jesus comes to announce the kingdom of God, to say that the kingdom of God, that Israel's prophets talked about this kingdom of peace and and justice and homecoming and the presence of God and, and forgiveness and mercy and joy is breaking into the world in a real way. In the beginning of the gospel of Mark, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Basically, like, reorient your entire life because the kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world. So as Jesus moves through his, his ministry, he is announcing the kingdom of God. He's describing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like, and he tells these parables, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he gives this sermon. But he's also demonstrating the kingdom of heaven is like, you can't see, now you can see. You don't have enough to eat, now you have enough to eat. You've walked around crippled by shame. Now you're walking around free in mercy and forgiveness. So he announces and describes the kingdom of God, but then he demonstrates the kingdom of God and says this is what it actually looks like. And then he invites people into the kingdom of God. 
And ultimately, his, his death and resurrection is this ultimate victory and invitation to open a way for us to come into the kingdom of God. The, the veil is torn and access is open. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is teaching us what the kingdom of God looks like lived out in real life situations. And he gets really specific about the real life situations that we might see the kingdom of God lived out in. What if you encounter violence? What if you encounter even a slap in the face? What if you encounter unforgiveness? How do you make a promise? How do you decide what you're going to build your life on? These are the places that the Sermon on the Mount examines as Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God. In the middle of it, he speaks to, um, basically, Jesus is doing this a lot. We, we might miss this as, as uh, readers in our time, but there's a lot of times where G- Jesus is interacting with the prevalent ideas of Jewish faith and practice in his time. You can go through and see there were conservative and liberal rabbi debates about how to live Torah in first century Israel, and Jesus weighs in on these discussions. And to us, it may feel like he's just giving a teaching that comes out of nowhere that's about being a human being in the world, and it is that, but it's also fully enmeshed in the story that he is Messiah of Israel as well as Savior of the world. And so one of the things Jesus speaks to is the foundations of first century Jewish life and practice. And amongst the anchors of that were prayer, fasting, and generosity. Your connection with God. Remember Daniel praying three times a day, like kneeling down, saying saying his prayers, and that's how the the scandal got got brought up, and he ends up getting in trouble, thrown in the lion's den. This regular practice was considered an essential part of Jewish Jewish piety, to, to commune with Yahweh in prayer, but then also to pray with your body, to fast, and to give generously to your neighbor. So Jesus comes to speak on these sort of pillars of Jewish faith and practice, and he makes, amongst other things that he says, he makes the same point about each of them. Learn to do this in secret. There will be a powerful draw for you to demonstrate, for you to show off, but learn not to. Learn the freedom, joy, power and future promise of having a robust hidden life with God and let that support and define your public action. There's a lot of power in what Jesus is saying, not just in teaching us how to pray or how to fast or or when is it appropriate to give or, or when not, but when you give, Don't do it to be seen. Don't draw attention to it. When you pray, don't perform. Don't let your words try to impress, but cultivate a real intimacy with God. When you fast or you make a sacrifice for God, don't make it about the recognition you get from people, but steady your heart towards Yahweh, towards God. We're trying in a very practical way as a church family at Trinity Grace to learn to pray during Lent. And an aspect of that prayer is to pray with our bodies and, and fasting. And maybe that's something utterly new to you. But I just want to tell you, we, we've got like you know, six weeks of Lent where we're learning this. But this is a lifelong pursuit. The key to any relationship of sustained intimacy is communication. If you want to be really close with someone, you must learn to talk and listen with them. If you want to be really close with God, you must learn to talk and listen with God. And so prayer and fasting is a way to cultivate real life intimacy with God. And then out of the overflow of that, to learn to do real life intimacy with one another. Jesus summarized everything, like the law and the prophets. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Communication is this key to those relationships. (laughs) So we pray with our words, but we also pray with our silence. Sometimes the greatest gift you can give intimacy in a relationship is to be quiet. (laughs) Just close your mouth and listen, and don't try to fix and just receive. 
So we, we pray with our words. We also pray with our listening. We can pray with our bodies. You can pray by kneeling. You can pray by raising your hands over and over. The Hebrew concepts of worship and praise involve a physicality. Let's get our whole bodies involved. That you can pray by saying, I'm hungry for God, by not eating. There, so we're learning there's, there's intricacy, there's beauty, there's fullness in a life of communion and connection with God. And Jesus says an important aspect of that life is learning to have a part of it happen behind closed doors, in hiddenness, in secret. So I ask, well, why does Jesus mention this so, so many times? Why does at each point he keep reminding us that we're not performing for one another, but we're actually learning to love and be loved by God? Why keep bringing up the pretending thing? And, and the reason is because we love to do it. No one has to really teach, teach you to show off. Right? We, we want to be seen and celebrated. And even if you're introverted, I know this is scandalous what I'm saying. You, you've seen the memes like, like anyway, I'm not going to get into it. But um, <laughs> um, even if you're introverted, you want to be seen and celebrated. We want to be known. This is part of the relational fabric of our souls. We are, we are made to be known, to be, to be appreciated, of course. And so that, that's not, it's not a bad thing. We are hardwired for relationships. It is right that you have a deep, profound need to be known. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, ignore that or, or, tr or try to pretend that reality isn't there or that you're, you've somehow moved past the, the need to be known. I don't really care what anybody thinks is one of the biggest lies of, of our, our human experience. It's a, it's a mask we wear. We, we long to share parts of ourselves so that we can be seen and appreciated, so that we can be loved. Kids know this, absolutely. Dad, watch me jump off this slide. Watch me jump over this creek. Watch me bounce this ball off the TV. Please don't. Please don't do that. It's a new TV. We got to watch the Oscars. Something might happen. Look at my painting, read my story, listen to this, right? We, our kids know this. And in something of the mystery of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about childlike faith, <laughs> there's a reality that we never grow beyond that. We never grow beyond like wanting to let what is truly there in our lives be seen and known. Of course that can get distorted, but we shouldn't rush past it as a real life longing and a true deep human need. I love C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite pieces of writing he's done is this essay called The Weight of Glory. I can't commend it to you enough. Um, but he talks about this relational instinct and how when he first became, he was just, you know, this Oxford professor and, 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 and master of literature and all, all this stuff. And when he came to Christianity in the beginning, the images of what our reward was were not appealing to him at all. It was like glory. And he was like, I don't know what that's all about. Like, are we just gonna glow forever with God on these like clouds? And then that God would say, well done. And he's like, that seems vain that we want God to say well done to us. But then he thought about it more. And, he, he, and this is something, I think a lesson for all of us. When you, when you come across imagery or stories in the scripture that are initially repellent to you, give a little pause and know that you're not the first person to have that question or issue or problem and see if there's a way, see if you can find a side door where you can enter in and explore. And Lewis talks about this, how sometimes his greatest surprises about the reality and character of God came in exploring something that he was initially repelled by and then found a way into and found a, a well of life within that very thing. And so he talks about this idea of God stirring our hearts by saying, one day I'll say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. That one day you'll come in and the heavenly father will embrace you and say, yes, you did so well. That was good. You were true to everything you were given. And that actually is not something we should ignore, but embrace the reality of in our own souls. I, I'm just going to give you what C.S. Lewis says because it's better than what I, I'm, I'm trying to summarize. He, he says, I read in, in a periodical the other day, the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. 
The premise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. Now now hear this, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. This is something you and I were made for, to know that we are sons and daughters who delight our heavenly Father and can run into that embrace. It is a genuine human longing that I bet I didn't need to convince you of, even though I've spent some time on it. Um, That we want what is most true about us to be seen and appreciated. Non-performative intimacy is a deep need of the human soul. The, the, the freedom to just truly be yourself, you might say naked and unashamed, in a, in a friendship, in, in a family, in, in a marriage, to be truly seen, to be truly known, and to be truly loved is one of the profound longings of the human soul. And so uh, that's part of why Jesus says it's so dangerous to make a big part of your life about pretending. Because you put distance between yourself and this profound human longing to be seen, known, and appreciated when you pretend. Because even if you get praise and recognition for the pretending, there's a gap between that and your real soul. So practice learning to be real. Because I'm guessing most of you can agree with this statement. We should be known, we should be seen, we should be appreciated. We, we long to have someone say to us, well done, good and faithful son, daughter. But what if we experience a lack in that category? What if we're not getting what we need in this essential sort of well in our interior? It doesn't feel filled up at all. And that's when the temptation to pretend towards hypocrisy becomes really profound. Elaine de Baton, who happens to not believe in God pub- publicly and has written this book, Status Anxiety, but I think ar- articulates this reality of the human experience really well. He says, our ego or self-conception could be pictured as a leaking balloon, forever requiring the helium of external love to remain inflated and forever vulnerable to the smallest pinpricks of neglect. There is something at once sobering and absurd <clears throat> in the extent to which we are lifted by the attention of others and sunk by their disregard. Our mood may blacken because a colleague greets us distractedly or the telephone call goes unreturned. This is before texts. And we are capable of thinking life worth living because someone remembers our name and sends us a fruit basket or something cool. He goes on, the attention of others matters to us because Uh, We are afflicted by a congenial uncertainty as to our own value, as a result of which affliction we tend to allow others' appraisals to play a determining role in how we see ourselves. And immediately, my heart wants to distance myself from that, and then I have to go back and look at the things I posted this week and say, what was this about? So Jesus comes along and says, be careful when you find yourself pretending. Be careful when you find yourself doing the detailed work of image curation. Be careful when you're, when you're trying to manage people's perception of you. It, of course, is a part of the human life and experience, but be careful when that begins to, to filter into the deepest parts of your life, when it begins to shape the, the real places of intimacy. What does it look like to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? If you find strains of hypocrisy, strains of pretending in those relationships, you should beware. And that's why Jesus dedicates a, a segment of his very short and tremendously important Sermon on the Mount to this reality of secrets and hiddenness, and integrity in the private realm. He comes along and he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. 
When you pray, go into the closet. Don't speak with words to try to impress. Just simply give your heart. When you fast, don't tell anyone. Don't make yourself look beaten down. Have a secret life with God. If you get anything from this message, here's the headline. Have a secret life with God. Have a secret life with God. And this, Jesus says, stakes his integrity on this. So if Jesus taught this, I bet you can bank on it. Jesus says that your heavenly father will reward you. There is the power of hiddenness. Jesus knew this, right? Even before Instagram and the 24-hour news cycle, that in a world of curated image management, a life of private devotion has tremendous power. A life of private devotion has tremendous power. Jesus knew this power. He knew, he knew what it was to interact with the Father in uninterrupted attentiveness. I want to invite you to that, right? We have a little space, a couple of uh, weeks between now and Easter, uh, where we're continuing in Lent to grow and, as people who conversate with God, who talk and listen. I want to invite you to have a secret life with God, but I want to invite you specifically to begin exploring what uninterrupted attentiveness to God would look like. To talk and listen, to sit in silence, to read for nourishment. Jesus' life apparently radiated. Obviously, he had miraculous power, right? People, crowds were drawn to Jesus because of his miraculous power. He told people who couldn't see to see, and they saw. Who couldn't walk to walk, and they walked. Like, he did tremendous things in the crowds. But you know what his disciples were drawn to him about? You know what they asked him when they had the chance for him to teach them? He didn't, they didn't say, teach us to teach. Teach us to do miracles. Teach us to pray. This uninterrupted attentiveness that you have with the Father defines your life. How could it define our life? How could we have the type of secret life that you have with God ourselves? Is that even possible? So that's the question I put to you this morning. Do you have a space in your life where you can practice uninterrupted attentiveness towards God? Because I want to tell you a secret <laughs> is that that is how you spill over in true uninterrupted attentiveness towards another <laughs> towards those in need, maybe even towards, like, in love towards your enemy. How do you possibly get there? How do you not become, like, someone who either retreats into ignoring the world because it's too much or becomes an absolutely burned-out activist <laughs> trying to change things? You have to have a secret life. You have to be drawing from a hidden well. You have to be nourished by the living water of communion with God to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. A book that changed my life when I read it, I was 15 years old. I read it for the first time. Short book, so I was able to get through it. The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. I've come back to this so many times. But I, I love what he says. This is sort of a roadmap for my secret life with God. Uh, is his secret life with God and, and others, right? Saints who've gone before us who show us what, you know, what it's like, what the way in looks like. But he says, it's inherent in personality to be able to know other personalities. Just pause and consider that for a second. God made you relational. The kingdom of God moves along relational lines. You're made for intimacy, for deep communion, for real relationship. It's inherent in personality to be able to know other personalities. But full knowledge of one personality cannot be achieved by, by in, in one encounter. You can't get it all just on Sunday. You can't get it all just in one tremendous encounter with God. It is only after long and loving interaction that the full possibilities of both can be explored. God is a person. And in the deep of his mighty nature, he thinks, wills, enjoys, feels, loves, desires, and suffers as any other person may. And making himself known to us, he stays by the familiar pattern of personality. He communicates with us, with us through the avenues of our minds, our wills, and our emotions. This continuous, unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed person is the throbbing heart of New Testament religion. This is what God is giving to us. This is a roadmap for your secret life with God. Jesus is teaching us to speak our true hearts. And if you don't know where to start, he gives us a place. 
He literally gives us a prayer. We can say he gives us exact words that we can use. And the Lord's prayer is, is tremendous. It's profound because it is a scaffolding and it's the whole building. Like you can pray it and, and saints uh, and, and believers across the world today are praying this prayer. And it's a real true prayer that you can pray, but you can also use it as categories to guide you in your own secret life with God. You can pray this together. You can pray this alone. You can, you can use each, each section of this prayer. It, it talks about where your focus and heart's attention is at. It talks about what you worship. It talks about what we need. It talks about the conflicts that we find ourselves in. It talks about what we're longing for. It talks about how our desire are being shaped. It, it, it talks about what it would look like for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer that if you don't know where to start, you can start. You can pray the Lord's Prayer. We could have literally books, series on this prayer. But just right now, I just want to hold it out to you as a life-giving resource for your secret life with God. Start with the Lord's Prayer. If you're ready to move on, you can, you can go. There's 150 psalms. Every one of them is a prayer. And you can put it in your mouth and see if it works. And then you can begin to put your own words to it. You can begin to vent your own soul. You can begin to practice silence. You can begin to enjoy just the, the communion of being with God. This prayer can launch you out into all of life. And Jesus is also teaching us to, to see God at the heart of everything that we're doing. So when you see a person in need, when you see something in the world that says, I need to respond to this in generosity. There's a war going on in Ukraine. There's a person walking down the aisle of my F train asking for, for, for food. How do I respond to these needs? What do I do? And if it's just me and the person, there's something profound there. I'm not diminishing that at all, but God is saying, I'm asking you to enhance that interaction by seeing that I am in the middle of this conflict in Ukraine. And you're not just giving to alleviate suffering there. You're also giving to express your heart to me in worship and love. And so there's, there's a fullness that, that I'm giving to this person in need because they have the need, but also because in them I see the image of God, you know, and I see the brokenness of the world, and I see an opportunity for the intersection of God's kingdom to break in on earth as it is in heaven in some little small way. And we're getting glimmers and glimpses and glances, and then one day we're going to see really truly as we are, as we are seeing, we're going to know as we are known. And now we, we, we look for these glimpses and, and glances. A person with a need isn't just showing us a need. They're showing us God. Mother Teresa said, we, we don't serve the poor because they're like Jesus. We serve the poor because they are Jesus. And then Jesus goes on and says basically the same thing. You did this to any of the least of these, you did it to me. And we want to sort of like hedge on that a little bit. Like, really? But Mother Teresa had a lifetime of, of seeing the face of God and the person in dire need in front of her. Jesus is saying, I want you to put your relationship with me in the, in, in the center of everything you do, whether you're giving or praying or, or making a sacrifice. And so his teaching gets to the power of hiddenness, absolutely, but also to this, the nature of motive and reward. This complex motivational structure that's behind and defining human life. Not just what do you do, but why do you do what you do? And Jesus seems to, to put a big amount of emphasis on the reality that why you do what you do really matters. As a matter of fact, you won't be able to sustain a life of doing the right outward action unless you work out this motivational and source reality. Outward action is not the, of course, it's not the only thing to consider in our lives, but it, it is the easiest part to fake. It is the easiest place to pretend, to curate. So we're invited to these practices with questions. Why am I praying? Why am I fasting? Why, why am I giving? Why do I want to be seen in a certain way? And, and I think it's important to note, right, 
maybe a little bit more now than 10 years ago or five years ago, but um, I'm not sure how much like social cachet you're gonna get for prayer, praying and fasting in, in our world. Like intermittent fasting is kind of having a moment and like general vague, like insp- inspirational spirituality sort of always flowing around in, in, in America. But like, I'm not sure a lot of people are gonna recognize you. I don't know that it's worth it. What I'm saying is, I don't know that it's worth it for you to blow a trumpet and then show people that you're fasting. I don't know that that's gonna help you socially in Brooklyn in 2022. But the world Jesus was speaking to, obviously the public performance of these uh, sort of foundations of Jewish piety were a way to increase your social standing. So then what's the dynamic equivalent for you? Our challenge of hypocrisy may be centered in other places. It might be our online image management. Or, or virtue signaling, which I know is a, a loaded phrase in and of itself because we need to be able to speak honestly about places that need to change in our world and yet there is this danger of self-righteousness. We, when, when, we, when we find ourselves in any arena talking a bigger game than we actually live, Jesus is saying, let that be a warning sign. Let that ring a little bell deep inside you and say, hang on. I was thinking about these aspects of what Jesus is talking about in just a surface level, simplest way. So to give, to pray, to fast, these three sort of practices of, of, of a life of faith. And there's, there's three aspects of it. You have first, just the goodness of the action. Like this is a good thing to do. It's good to be generous. It's good to pray. It's good to talk to God. It's good, it's, it can be good to fast. Obviously, any of it can be overdone or distorted, but there's the goodness of the action. So there's just doing the thing itself. And then second, there's the possibility that someone sees you doing the good thing and, and, and recognizes it. So there's the recognition of others. And that might be positive or negative. In this instance, it seems like there was, a lot, there was a lot of positive affirmation for this outward demonstrations of public life. And then there's the reality of the reward of God. So maybe the one we ignore the reality the most because we, we sort of want to like distance ourselves in kind of a false humility, say, I'm not in this for reward at all. It's just about the goodness of the thing itself for me. So there's the goodness of the action, there's the possibility of recognition, and there's the reward of God. I just want you to sort of think about that in your own life. When I pray, when I give, now expand it out a little bit. What about the rest of my life? What about the things that, that I find myself regularly doing? I want to say something about this, this reward piece. Um, in each instance, it seems to me that Jesus is saying, the reward is that you get God now and you get God later. That when you give, you're participating in God's work and activity in the world now and that, there, that God is going to make sure that, that over the course of your life, there's no sense of loss whatsoever because what you get from God is going to be so much more than you are possibly able to give away. That when you pray, you're communing with God and the, and the reward for that communion with God is God himself. But also, there's a future promise of increasing intimacy and increasing knowledge and increasing relationship that you're going to have with God in heaven forever. When you fast, you're praying with your body and saying, I'm hungry for you, God. And the reward of that is an increased focus on reality, intimacy, connection with God. But then there's also the reality that every sacrifice you make in the kingdom of God, God is going to reward. And so Jesus is not saying that we should be utterly disinterested in reward. As a matter of fact, he's saying don't settle for the very small reward of curating your image only and getting claps and praise and applause from someone right, right there present at the expense of truly pleasing God. Because when you put God in the center of any of these three, you still have the goodness of the action. Your motives are lifted up from being mere performance for other people or pretending or hypocrisy. And then you have the joy of God present in the moment and and promised in the future. So very simply, Jesus is telling us, build a secret life with God. That's where we're basically gonna close. This is part of what it looks like to love God with your whole life, is to build a secret life with God, is to, uh, to learn that there is so much joy. I wanna say this. 
Some of you are like, I'm just not disciplined enough, or I, I, I really struggle with consistency, or, or I'm so busy, I've got so many other priorities that I'm juggling. And, and I say this to you with no shame whatsoever, but I wanna tell you, uh, there are many people in this room, in this church, and I won't point them out because then it's not secret anymore, but who are learning the power, the beauty, the joy of a secret, non-performative intimacy with God. There is so much power in it to be able to say, God, this is just for you and I. For God to give secret gifts into your heart where the Holy Spirit speaks to you in that private place, it literally is the throbbing heart of our relationship. It sustains, it is part of the very, the living water that satiates the soul. There is tremendous, I wanna say this, this is true with God, but it's true across the board. There's tremendous power in relationships where you can stop pretending. One of the things the church could be, and we have failed mightily in this vocation over the years, but one of the things the church could be, it's a safe, beautiful space where our relationships could be defined by not pretending. That the same non-performative intimacy that we have with God, where he knows us all the way through, could define how we've been grace and mercy and love and welcome and hospitality to one another. And it could begin to shape our very lives. It could be able to shape the welcome that is extended from our church. It could be able to shape that this place becomes truly a hospital and not just like a, a, a club for us to get together and hear, hear teaching or, or sing songs, but to be the church. <laughs> There's so much joy in secret, non-performative life with God, and there's tremendous power in relationships where you can stop pretending. So I just basically summarize. Jesus just says, when you see a need, see God. It takes some discernment. There's so much need in the world. How do you know what you're supposed to give your attention to, right? There's a relational process going on. You see a need. The need in the world is bigger than your resources. But if God directs your attention to a need or God brings someone relationally across your path, begin with the framework that when you see a need, there's a chance you might be seeing God, God's image demonstrated, the possibility of interacting with God, the possibility of showing love to God as well as showing love to this person. And that doesn't lessen the love you have for the person at all. In fact, it grows it. In the person, in the situation, the need is present, God is present. When you see a need, see God. When you pray, seek God. Like you said all this to say that, it's pretty simple. We knew that, pal. Okay, well, come back next week. Find a private place. Honestly, this is one of the hardest parts of it for me. Like, I know we all have different challenges. There's so many people that live in my house. This is, they're just coming out from everywhere. What have we done? I, I, I don't know where to close a door. There's one place. But um, it's the bathroom, guys, of course. But um, where do I go, right? I have to go outside to the park. Like, it's, I want to say, I just, this is my own personal. It's hard for me to find a private place in New York City. But go somewhere where you can be alone. Start by praying the Lord's Prayer if you're wondering where to start. But begin to cultivate a, ro a robust life of talking and listening to God. Talking and listening to God. And maybe one day of that won't be spectacular. Maybe one month of that won't be spectacular. Maybe a year of that you're still wrestling. But I want to tell you, a lifetime of talking and listening to God is a wellspring that can shape your entire public life. It's a promise of God now and God forever. <laughs> Not because you're earning God's affection through prayer, but because of the gospel, this access point, right? The veil was torn. We can come all the way in to the heart of God. When you fast, you are nourished by God. When you see a need, see God. When you pray, seek God. When you fast, you're nourished, you're nourished by God. We're trying this during Lent as a, as a church on, on Wednesdays. From sunup to sundown or some point, you know, maybe just lunch. But we're trying this little exercise of giving up food for a little bit of time in order to, 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 uh, to, to pray with our bodies. To say, God, we don't do this because it makes you love us more. We do this because you've already loved us more than we could possibly fathom. We can't even get to the bottom of how deep and high and long and wide is your love. But we're going to fast, make this small sacrifice to say, we're are going to be hungry for you and hungry for change in the lives of our friends and families and neighbors and enemies and world. 
We're fasting because we want to be nourished by you, God, because we want our world to be nourished by you. And so we're, we're practicing saying, I'm hungry for you, God. Practice being nourished by God. Practice praying with your body. And actually, Jesus says, do these things in secret and your Father will reward you. But he doesn't tell you what the reward is, which I think is brilliant. Because if he did, we'd fixate on that. It's going to be a big house in heaven. Can't wait for it. I'm going to be the chairman of the Heaven Professional Baseball League. Make a lot of rule changes. Like, whatever the thing is, there'd be some temptation that if it wasn't God himself that was the reward. You know, we would, we would like, he is truly a good heavenly father, the shepherd of our souls, that he knows the intricacies of who you are in a way that you can't even possibly fathom, knows the hairs on your head. And so he's not going to tell us the reward. The reward is him. And everything that comes with God, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else you need will be added unto you. But I I do think the heart of the reward is going to be God himself. Theologian I have massive respect for, N.T. Wright, says of the Sermon on the Mount, we could suggest that the title for the whole Sermon on the Mount could be what it means to call God Father. What it means to call God Father. How else could you possibly get slapped and then turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, give secretly in loving generosity? How could you sustain that? How could you, how could you be someone who works for peace, who makes a promise and doesn't vary from it? Like, what does it mean to call God Father? It means that we live in loving, ongoing communication. It means when we see our world and our neighbor, we see them through the lens of God's love. And it means the sacrifices we make are, are made out of that love rather than fear or pride. Like, I've got to do this or this person's not going to love me or I've got to do this because I'm the best. Fear and pride are just, they're not nutrient enough fuels to run our life on. We have to, to build it on love. And that's why God is inviting us to pull intimacy into the center of these practices. Church, let's build a secret life with God. Let's build a secret life with God and then see how it shapes our public life together. See how it shapes the outpouring out of this building into our city and neighborhood. We talk all the time, and this truly is the end, about presence, formation, and love, to be with God, to be with God. And in that relational intimacy, a, a, a transformation through a relationship begins to happen. It's called discipleship or sanctification, but it's the formation of our character to become like Jesus so we can live a life of, of love in action and be sustained in that love in action and not just be a blip. But to be sustained, we have to have the source of the Holy Spirit, not just the infrequent reality of our willpower. Presence, formation, and love. Be with God. Become like Jesus. Live a life of active love by the Holy Spirit. This is our life together as a church. This is part of what it is to be the church in our time. Let's build a secret life with God. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. Fill this place. Fill each person with your Holy Spirit. Come in your mercy and show us, God, the things that have been distracting us, God, the things that have been uh, alternative priorities that have won our hearts, things that may have been pulling us down into worry or anxiety or, or despair, and we, we can't lift our, 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 our head up to you, God. I pray, God, whatever the barriers are to us truly cultivating a secret life of intimacy with you, that you would begin to gently remove them, that your kindness would lead us to repentance, that we could begin to build our life around loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. God, I pray in very real ways that you would exalt Jesus in our hearts right now. In very real ways, you would lead us by your Holy Spirit into what steps of obedience we are to take today. We cannot follow you tomorrow. We cannot change yesterday. We can follow you right now in this moment. And I pray you would help us. God, help us, help us. Come Holy Spirit. Help us, God, build a secret life with you. Inflow and outflow. Inhale, exhale, God. Communion with you and generosity.
intimacy and love. And may it glorify you, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. It's an honor to be your pastor, church, uh, one of a few uh, here. And it's an honor to stand with you as God is moving in our midst. I want to invite you to stand right now. We're going to come to this table of communion. I love the practical example today, the reality that we're going to come and take this bread and this cup. And you know what it represents is the broken body and shed blood of our Savior. That the veil was torn because Christ's body was torn. That the way of intimacy was opened because of what Christ has done, not because of our obedience. It is all by grace. And yet this meal is something we are nourished by and something we become. So Christ is broken and poured out for us, and that nourishes us. But then we become broken and poured out for our neighbors. And later today, we're literally going to make sandwiches out of bread to be given away. To me, it's just like beautiful metaphor for what the church is meant to be. Nourished by this meal and then giving away the meal and then becoming the meal. I just want to invite you to take a moment in your heart to prepare For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. You are the treasure of God, church, and this meal is your reminder. You're nourished by his love to sustain your presence as a nourisher in your community. What a beautiful reality. We have it now and forever. God is in the center. God is our reward. Heavenly Father, bless this bread, bless your cu- the cup, bless your church as she comes. Nourish us and lead us in steps of obedience by your Holy Spirit. We love you, we celebrate you, in Jesus' name, amen.